0: Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Worshiping with us online, thank you for being with us today. I'm exhausted. We've had a wedding this week. Um, My son Matthew got married, and uh, it was a long day. And... uh, the wedding was beautiful. Everything went off without a hitch until the very end. When I had them turn and and I said, it's my privilege to present to you the first time, anywhere, anytime, Mr. and Mrs. Andrew Die." <laughs> yeah, the problem was it was Matthew Die. You see, <laughs> it was the wrong son. <laughs> there was a gasp and everybody turned around and One of my smart, my smart aleck daughter-in-law came up to me, who is married to Andrew, and said, does this mean I'm a sister wife? You know, (laughs) know, I just said, love covers, okay, love covers. Uh, Glad you're here today worshiping, because I came across this. The sign read, uh, how to install a southern home security system. Go to Goodwill and buy a pair of size 14 to 16 men's work boots. Place them on your front porch, along with a copy of Guns and Ammo magazine. Put four giant dog dishes next to the boots and magazines. Leave a note on the door that reads, Bubba, me and Marcel, Donnie Ray, and Jimmy Earl. <laughs> Aren't those great southern names? I can't even hardly read them. Marcel, Donnie Ray, and Jimmy Earl went for more ammo and beer. We'll be back in an hour. Don't mess with the pit bulls. They got the mailman this morning and messed him up bad. (laughs) I don't think Killer took part, but it was hard to tell from all the blood. Anyway, I locked all four of them in the house. Better wait outside. Be right back. Cooter. (laughs) You know what's sad is we've got to have security systems, right? Because... Bad people do bad things, and we get that, and it's frustrating, and we have to live in that world, but what's really frustrating is when bad people do bad things and get away with it, right? I mean, suffering makes us sad, but injustice makes us mad, and the more we look around in our world, the more that seems to be the case, and the madder we seem to be getting because it just seems like injustice is everywhere. But did you ever stop and think, uh, what if I'm a part of that? What if I'm a part of the injustice. I think sometimes we need to we need to look at that too. What if, what if this injustice is on me? That was the case with Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So let's take our Bibles. Let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. That'll help. Flip open about the middle of your Bible and you should land on it in a second or two. Chapter 4, of course, comes right after chapter 3, so you should get there. If you get to chapter 3, got it? All right. This book, Ecclesiastes, reads like the journal of an addict who sobers up between benders. I mean, there's this moment of clarity, and then there's this moment of despair, and it just seems to kind of go off. Now, most of the time, it beats the same tired drumbeat of despair, which is the ultimate consequence of humanism. Humanism is always going to lead to despair. And so that really becomes the theme of the book, and it opens up vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I mean, we get it. What advantage does man have in all of his striving under the sun? And the context, of course, is as long as I'm under the sun, I'm on this horizontal plane, and all I'm seeing is what I can see, feel, touch, hear, smell here on this earth. And and consequently, as a result of that, uh, it's difficult to find meaning, significance, purpose, uh, even satisfaction. And that's where Solomon is. He's really been struggling with that because he's chosen that horizontal perspective. But then ever so often, he looks up at least six times, there's this moment of clarity in this book. And then in chapter 12, uh, everything begins to clear up. But Ecclesiastes 2, 23 through 26 Ecclesiastes 3.22, 3.12 through 13, 5, 18 through 19, 8.15, and 9, 7 through 9 are moments of clarity. And last week uh, we were looking in chapter 2 and we saw one of those sober moments, right? 224. There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I've seen that it is from the hand of God. And so he's saying, you know, at the end of the day, we need to back up, stop, look at our life, uh, assess the blessings that God has given us, uh, accept those things that are good, and uh, realize that God is in control. He's sovereign over these things. And then in chapter 3, he begins to unpack what he means by that. And he talks about the appropriateness of time. You know, there's a time for this, there's a time for that. There's a time to mourn, there's a time to dance. And as we move in that appropriateness, we live with that life of balance. And that life of balance becomes a life of blessing. We talked about that last time. Now we're back in chapter 4, and Solomon's back in the dumps. He's back in the pits. And in chapter 4, even in the pits, the Holy Spirit uses his insight as much to tell us what not to do as to tell us what to do. And he really addresses, I think, three broad issues all related to power. The first is the blinding power of ambition. The second is the encouraging power of community. And then the the final one is the fleeting nature of power. And so we don't have time to deal with all three of those. So let's just pick up the first one. Let's talk about blind ambition, okay? Before we begin to talk about blind ambition, I think it's important to differentiate because I think sometimes we confuse success with ambition. And and as a result of that, we think it's wrong to be successful, or at least we feel guilty about being successful. Let me just say this as clear as I can. Success is good. God wants you to be successful. Did you hear that? And I'm not a prosperity guy. But God wants you to be successful. Listen to uh, 3 John 1, verse 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may, here's the word, prosper. And be in good health. But notice, just as your soul prospers, in other words, there's this uh, symbiotic relationship between your soul and your experience that as my soul longs for God and as I am consumed with the things of God, the natural outcropping of that or the consequence of that is that God begins to bless my life. And so success becomes a part of who I am. You see it again in Proverbs 10, verse 22. It says, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. So success isn't a bad thing, but selfish ambition is a bad thing. James chapter 3, verse 16, for wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. And sadly, what often happens is the pursuit of success degenerates into a pursuit of blind ambition. And that's what happened with Solomon. His life starts out and he's very blessed by... Uh, the relationship his father had with the Lord. King David had this unique relationship. He was a man after God's own heart. He shepherded the nation of Israel through the integrity of his heart. David was a unique man. And through his blessing poured out on Solomon, Solomon shared that. And God came to Solomon and said, ask anything you want and you can have it. And Solomon asked for wisdom. And God said, that's a great choice, Solomon. I'm going to give you not only wisdom, but through your wisdom, your life is going to prosper and you're going to be blessed. And so he's experiencing success. But somewhere along the way, there was a twist in his character. And somewhere along the way, he lost track of where success was really coming from. And so... Thankfully, he was still honest about it and enough to reveal the consequences for us. And that's where we get the book of Ecclesiastes. But for me, the key to this and the important key to the interpretation, to unlock the interpretation of this book, is to view it through the eyes of Solomon. Because if you don't do that, you're going to misread it. You cannot read Ecclesiastes the way you would read First Corinthians where Paul says, do this, do that, and it becomes prescriptive. You read it, you take it at face value, you go, okay, that's what I'm gonna do. But Ecclesiastes are the ramblings of a man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who is revealing the dark thoughts of a man whose perspective is horizontal, without God. And it becomes a a cautionary tale, a warning for us, like a warning sign, don't go this way. Bridge is out, stop. And that interpretive method becomes important because we have to kind of get, there's a, there's a German word that they use in interpretive method called sitz laban. And it simply means setting in life. And so as you read the Bible, you want to attempt to put yourself in the setting of that situation because it's important to know what it meant before we can understand what it means. And so I'm trying to get into the head of the guy that writes this. I'm trying to walk in his sandals. I'm trying to feel what he feels. And this guy is an old, burned out, former believer of God who's now somewhat in this moment of despair and degeneration, trying to find his way back. He's trying to find his way back. And so we don't get at the truth so much from what he says, but through the incorporation of the entire situation he was in. And he begins by talking about where he is. And that gives us this principle that ambition leads to darkness. And he doesn't say that, but it's derived from the experience and from what he says. Look at what he says. Then I looked again. You see that? I looked again. That's a reference back to chapter 3, verse 16. I also noted that under the sun, there's evil in the courtroom yes, even the courts of law are corrupt. So he's saying, I'm looking at the court system, the legal system, and there's corruption everywhere. And then he said, I took another look at this, and injustice is everywhere. Uh, Verse one, then I looked again. Uh, The New Living Translation uh, reads, "Uh, uh, again I looked. I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. It's like, he's, it's like he's suddenly aware of what's been going on the whole time. I mean, everybody else could have seen it, but all of a sudden Solomon looks at it and it's like he sees something for the first time that every, and, and I think this really gives you an insight into where his head was, you know? Um, and that single phrase really emphasizes the blindness of ambition, Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and, what the, and that they had no one to comfort them, and on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. You see it? There's a blinding aspect to ambition. Coulson writes about it. Chuck Colson was a special counsel to Richard Nixon, President Nixon, for those of you who are too far removed now in history to even know who that guy was. And Nixon got, of course, caught up in the Watergate scandal, and Colson was his special counsel. So, by virtue of that, Colson was caught up in it. And Colson went from uh, unlimited access to the Oval Office and living in the West Wing to living in a prison. He was actually in prison for this. And through this, he wrote a couple of books. He wrote a lot of books and I encourage you to get anything you can get from Colson. One of the one that really defines his transformation was called Born Again. There's another book he read, wrote called The Body which was equally fantastic. But in this book he says, "The brighter I became, the more dangerous I was." He's talking about power. "The more power I acquired, the more power acquired me." I was blind. Indeed, only in the breakdown of power did I finally understand both it and myself. For my view of life was through the narrow openings as the elegantly draped windows of the White House, and my vistas were of lush green lawns, manicured bushes, and proud edifices housing the corridors of power. But looking at the world from the underside through the bars of a dark prison cage and the barbed wire of forced confinement, I could for the first time really see. And through that process, he came to faith in Christ. But listen again, the more I acquired power, the more power acquired me. That's so true. And he compared it to being blinded. That's why we call it blind ambition, because there's a blinding nature to it. And and here's what happens. First of all, you stop seeing God, right? And that's where Solomon was. I mean, he's living on the horizontal plane, uh, his, his heart is filled with all of that. And to make matters worse, his lust is driving his decisions, right? Uh, remember I said last time Solomon had a thousand wives. Not only is that dark from the perspective of the unbridled lust of Solomon, but think of the actual, you know, slave trade of those women who are part of his harem who are one of a thousand other women. I mean, think what their life ambitions worked out to be, right? Right. But then the Bible makes this note in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. You see that? In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Now look at this. This is what's heartbreaking. Solomon worshiped Ashtoreth. That's the female deity of Baal, the goddess of the Sidians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Verse 6, in this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. I say that because most people just have a singular perspective on Solomon. They think Solomon the wise, right? Right. And Solomon was wise, and he wrote Proverbs and all that. But there's really two parts to Solomon. There's the Solomon of, of youth, and then there's the older Solomon who had fallen into, into this lust. And it, it was like the centrifugal forces of lust and power had somehow slung truth and God from his very heart, which is the, the nature of ambition. And in the process, you just can't even see God anymore. And then you stop saying right and wrong. When you can't see God, you can't see right and wrong. Your moral compass is broken. In fact, they have a word for this today because this is such a part and parcel of postmodernism and atheistic existentialism that we live in that they now have this coin that they've termed called moral flatliners because uh, this generation struggles to even know the basics of right and wrong. And that's where Solomon was. And then you stop seeing people. Notice he says, and behold the tears. I get the impression that he's surprised by the tears. Like, I didn't realize everybody was hurting so bad. He's been so insulated by his own selfishness that he never even saw the pain of his people. You know, the image that keeps coming to mind is that emperor's new groove. You know, with Cucos or whatever his name. What was the guy's name? Cusco's. And Cusco's was, Solomon is Cusco's. He's so consumed with his own ambition and selfishness, he has no idea what the people are going through. And then you stop seeing yourself. He said, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. And I kept reading this, and I just went, you know, something's not right here. Do you feel it? Do you feel something's not right? I mean, he's talking about oppression, and he's wringing his hands. He's talking about the tears of the people. But he acts like there's nothing that can be done to help anybody. And then I remember, wait a minute, he's king. There's clearly a lot he could do. He could have said, hey, we need to institute reform. We need to begin to try to balance the scales. We've got to find a way to comfort the people and elevate them. You know, it... And and on top of that, it was his policies that were creating a lot of the suffering. When Solomon died, he had a son named Rehoboam, and Solomon and David were uh, over the whole kingdom of Israel at that time, okay? And they were basically a tribal uh, people that had consolidated into uh, a nationality, a national people, but there was still that tribalism in play, and the 10 tribes of the north were somewhat disenfranchised from the two tribes of the south, and so to placate those people and to keep them in the nation, Solomon went to Shechem in the north to sort of talk to them about buying into his leadership as the national leader. And they came to him with a request that is very insightful in terms of understanding Solomon's reign. It's in 1 Kings chapter 12 verse 4. It says, your father made our yoke hard Therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. In other words, your father, Solomon, your father, Solomon, and his excessive lifestyle was, was funded by the sweat and tears of his people. You see, rather than shepherding the sheep, Solomon was fleecing the flock. Do you get it? And this is so ironic because Solomon knew better. I mean, he wrote Proverbs chapter 29, verse 2, when a wicked man rules, people groan. But he can't see this in himself. Notice the third person. He calls them oppressors. It's like a politician speaks, you know. There's always this you know, left-wing radical group or this right-wing nefarious radical group uh, that is responsible for all the suffering that we have. And there's really, unfortunately, nothing we can do about those groups, right? And that's what Solomon's doing. He's like, man, there's nothing anybody can do because he's so blind to himself. He can't see that he is the problem. (laughs) That's what ambition does. It blinds us. There's a darkness, and that darkness leads to cynicism. Look at verse 2. So I congratulated the dead. I'm like, what? I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. Who talks like that? But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. What a strange reaction to injustice, right? I mean, don't you think? I mean, live in his shoes. Immerse yourself in in, in him. Who talks like that? Who looks at injustice and goes, man, it'd be better to be dead. Good thing that guy didn't live. Who does that? I mean, why didn't he say, we need to stop this? As king, I'm going to put an end to this. I'm going to do something. He didn't say anything like that. Instead, he said, man, this is terrible. Life stinks. I think it's better not to be born. Swindoll so, helped me with this. He said, if a person lives with injustice long enough, especially if he or she lacks divine perspective, that person becomes disillusioned, ultimately cynical. And that cynicism results in a twisted kind of injustice itself. Darkness leads to cynicism. That's where we are today. You know, I talked about nihilism, and uh, that's, that's where we are today. And when you're, when you're living in that cynicism, uh, it's easy for you to go a little crazy, which is the next thing. Cynicism leads to craziness. You know, you look around at our world and you go, where'd all this craziness come from? I mean, we're living in a crazy world. We're crazy people. It's birthed out of that postmodern idea that nothing really matters and nothing's really important and, you know, do whatever you can do to find some sort of value in life. And that's where some, one form of craziness is you become overly suspicious. Look at verse four, man, we're here. I've seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the underline this part is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after win. Everything we do is driven by rivalry. Is that really true? I mean, come on, is that true? I mean, yeah, sometimes we're too competitive. Even in churches, we can be too competitive, and we can view other churches as our competition instead of as our ally, and we forget that we're all part of a bigger king. That's what's so cool about this deal they're doing tonight. You know, they're doing a men's deal up here tonight, a men's praise time, and and they're bringing in uh, praise band members from North Monroe, from Christ Church. From First West, from Whites Ferry Road, all of them together, kind of reminding ourselves that this is not the kingdom of heaven. This is just one part of the body. And we forget that sometimes, and we may view that other guy as our competition. We forget that in life too, and in business, and we forget hey, there's plenty to go around. We all need to kind of help each other up. But you know, when you become blindly ambitious, you forget about all that. Maybe that was how Solomon thought. When you're blinded by ambition, filled with cynicism, you lose your mind and everyone's out to get you. And maybe you think that way because you've always been out to get them. There's a great verse in Proverbs, also written by Solomon. He who has a crooked mind finds no good. Proverbs seventeen twenty. Have you ever heard of that one? Here's my translation. When your head is crooked, you see a crook in everyone else everything's driven by rivalry. Second form of craziness is inconsistency. You say one thing, five minutes later, you go the opposite direction. Look at verse five. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. that sounds really familiar to something Solomon said in Proverbs 6, 6, verse 10. He said, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. What he's saying is... We're in this struggle in life being a struggle, but I can't check out because if I just check out and fold my hands, I'm going to find poverty and want and despair, right? So that's not the answer. But then watch what he does. He seems to wonder if it's better than to be lazy and poor than rich and miserable. Verse six, one handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. It's like, it's like, what is it, Solomon? And you say one thing and then you spin around and you say the opposite thing. Why are only two choices so extreme? Another form of crazy is that you forget what you're doing, and this is the big one, verse 7. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There was a certain man, and I really believe this is Solomon describing himself. I think this is an autobiography. There was a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, He and he never asked, for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This, too, is vanity and a grievous task. He says, his eyes are never satisfied. Man, that's Solomon. He's never satisfied with riches, and, you're, and you'll never be satisfied. You know, they asked this really wealthy man, one of the wealthiest men in the world. They said, how much is enough? How much is enough? And you know what he said? Just a little more. At some point, it's no longer about the assets. At some point, it's, it's about the acquisition. And I'm just blindly doing this thing just to grind it out and get more and more and more. And I never ask myself, why am I doing this? It's like a hamster on the wheel, you know? I'm just running like a madman, and I never back up in time and say, what am I doing this for? It says that, it says that uh, he doesn't have a son. And Solomon had a son. His name was Rehoboam. I don't know what the Greek word for moron is. Um, I think it's moron, Okay. And I don't know how to spiritually say that other than he was. Uh, and it took him about 15 minutes after Solomon died to wreck the kingdom and create a civil war and ruin it forever, okay? And so that's who he leaves all of his wealth to. And the craziness leads to loneliness. Ambition leads to darkness, the darkness leads to cynicism. The cynicism leads to craziness, and the craziness leads to loneliness. Verse 8, having neither son nor brother. Solomon had brothers, but they were all stepbrothers and bitter rivals. David, David's family was this giant dysfunctional mess. He had one son, we talked about this, that he raped a daughter. He had another son that murdered that son. And then that same son led a coup against David, to uh, have him deposed as king and put himself in that place. And he was ultimately killed in the process. And so this is the turbulent world of David's family that Solomon came up in. He didn't really have any brothers. All he had was rivals. And he's got all of those rivals. And it becomes very dark and twisted. I mean, he actually, in order to become king, killed his own brother and uh, killed David's general. Now, they were trying to kill him, and so it was very dark and bitter. But how do you walk that back, and how do you get over that, and how does that not make you a little nuts, right? And so Solomon doesn't really know his boy. He hadn't spent five minutes with him. He was too busy being Solomon. And the truth is he didn't really know anybody, and nobody knew him. And and that's the craziness of ambition. It leads to loneliness and isolation. Swindoll calls it the lonely howl of the top dog. Listen to what he wrote. More often than not, those who find themselves approaching the top of the steep ladder of financial success have few friends, if any. They struggle to keep peace at home. Furthermore, they often live on the precipice of disillusionment, sometimes despair. Loneliness is the plague of the loner, and by and large, top dogs are loners. Either by design or by default, most executives operate in a very private world where companionship and happiness elude them. Solomon knew that. He was successful, rich, and lonely. Like so many people we read about today. Maybe just like you. Let's take a minute to apply this stuff, okay? These words are a warning, right? So how do we, how do we apply this? Look, there's nothing wrong with success. God wants us to be successful, and He's going to bless us, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But there's everything wrong with ambition because it blinds us, and that blindness makes us cynical, and that cynicism makes us crazy, and that craziness makes us lonely. Are you following it? And, And what happens is you wind up getting what you didn't want. That's the crazy thing. When you're ambitious, you're trying to get for yourself what you want, but you wind up getting the very thing you didn't want. I read this story, true story, there were these crooks, and they decided they wanted to make some money. You know, if if crooks would just work as hard at being honest as they do at being crooks, they'd be millionaires. Well, these guys decided the best way for fast money was through pharmaceuticals. So they wanted to rip off pharmaceuticals and then sell them on the black market, right? Right. But instead of going after like a pharmacy, these guys wanted to go big time and so they wanted to rip off, they were going to hijack a semi-tractor trailer full of pharmaceuticals. And so they planned the heist, they pull the heist off, they hijacked this, this semi full of pharmaceuticals, they get back to the hideout, they throw the doors open and they had successfully stolen 60,000 bottles of milk of magnesia. That was the funniest thing I'd read in a long time. I mean, I just laughed out loud. I mean, what do you do with 60,000 bottles of milk of magnesia? That's going to be a hard sell down on the the hard streets, you know. Hey, you know, uh, take too much of that dope. You may need a little milk of magnesia. I got 60,000 bottles I'm trying to move. (laughs) And I thought about that. I thought they got the very thing they didn't want. That's what ambition does to us. That's where Solomon is. What are we going to do about it? Let me offer three insights. Check your vision. Check your vision. It's the blinding nature of it that's so deadly. Check your vision. What really matters in my life? What are those things that that really matter? How? how can I see God in these phases of my life? And how can I keep from going blind? This is why it's so important to have people close to you who can speak truth. You need someone who will speak truth and love and help you see what you can't see because we all have blind spots. And that's one of the dangers. The more successful you get, the less feedback you get. And that's why we see these explosions at the top because they're in a position where nobody can talk to them anymore and nobody can tell them what's wrong in their life. And so we got to be very humble, and we got to say, God, make me teachable. Help me to clearly define my vision. And it starts at the cross. I see Jesus, and that becomes the target of my life, that Jesus is the target of my life. And so I'm looking at that, and I realize anything that's going to pull me away from Jesus is something that I don't want to participate in right? Somebody said, what's God's will for your life? Here it is. God's will for you is sanctification. Make you holy. Anything that keeps you from being holy, God didn't want in your life. Second, remember your priorities. It's very close, but I've got I've to set my vision, and then I've got to set my priorities off of my vision, and I've got to say, what are those things that I'm going to prioritize? One of them is time along with God. I'm going to prioritize that I'm going to spend time with God so that my values stay clear. And I set those priorities. Why am I here? God, what do you want? And then surrender your plans. See, the problem with ambition is it's your plan, success is God's plan. There's a difference. The Bible says, many are the plans of a man's heart, but the Lord directs the steps. I love what Henry Blackaby says. He says, God is at work all around you. Join him. But don't do this. And this is what we always do. We come to God and we say, God, here's my plan. Bless my plan. No, it's God, what is your plan? And how can I participate in your plan? And and when God, when you do that, your plans are going to change. And you may not wind up where you thought you wanted to be, but you're going to wind up where you always wished you were. It's hard for you to understand that. But when you chase ambition, you're going to wind up getting what you never wanted. But when you give up on that ambition and you walk in the holiness of Christ and you say, hey, let my plans be your plans, He's going to fulfill His plan in you and you're going to be successful. You may not be rich, because His calling on you isn't to build a, a mass of money. His calling on you is to build a life. And you're going to look back someday and you're going to go, I'm blessed. So we surrender our ambition. And we let God be the source. Are you ready to do that? I mean, this is, a, this is a warning sign on the highway here. And we can pursue blind ambition and, and get what we never wanted. 60,000 bottles of milk and magnesia. Some of y'all are like, I think I'm already there. Or we can say to God, God, clarify my vision. Remind me of my priorities. And I surrender my plans. Let's do that right now as we bow before the Father. Here's our commitment. Father, give me Clarity. I open myself up to criticism today. I want people to speak truth into my life. And I want you to speak through the Holy Spirit truth so that my vision is clear. Father, I, I want to reset my priorities. I've got them messed up. More than anything, here's my plans, and I just surrender them to you, and I pray that you would do with them what you would do. Heavenly Father, We are so grateful that you love us. You created us. And you've got a perfect knowledge of who we are and you know exactly what's best for us. And you have a plan for every one of us. And your plan for us is not always the same, but it's your plan. Solomon started out really great. But somewhere along the way, he lost his way. And ambition took the place of success. Don't let that be the case for us. And so, Father, right here, right now, we just lay our plans at your feet, whatever they are. And we just pray that you would take them. And, God, that you would show us what your plan is so that we can walk in it. And that may change the way we do our business. That may change the way we do our family. It'll certainly change the way we prioritize our time. But it's yours, Father, and today change us. Let this be that moment of change. Rest in this place, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.